A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You are accursed. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared by the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. I do not remember consciously pairing this particular passage of scripture or sermon topic with this particular Sunday, but God in his providence has a certain way of working things out. It just so happens that on the day that we're going to hear about the final judgment of God, you also are kind of drowsy. Nevertheless, wake up. (laughs) Preachers, for the most part, do not like to preach about the last judgment. We do not like to talk about separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. That's because most people, in my experience, don't like to hear about it. We'd much rather hear about the shepherd who goes out to find the lost sheep, even though it puts our associate pastor in danger of cardiac arrest. (laughs) 
we would much rather hear about the loving, forgiving, grace-filled Jesus who's our best buddy and pal. In my experience, there's only a few who like to hear about the judgment, and generally they are those who are convinced that when that final decision comes by the maker of all things about who's going to the good place and who's not going to the good place, they are going to the good place and there's no way that you possibly are. And so it is with trepidation and fear and yet also with absolute conviction that I bring us to that place where we think about the words that Jesus said. You see, I've made a commitment a long, long time ago to preach the whole gospel to you, to explain the whole of Scripture for you, to take you into the depths of meaning and truth that sometimes may be uncomfortable sometimes may be difficult. And so in honesty and truth, you and I have to think. We have to deal with this story from Jesus. I appreciate the Apostles' Creed. By the way, we're returning to the Creed now to finish thinking about the wonderful theological affirmations that are there. We come to that place in the creed now where we read that Jesus has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, Jesus shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Those who are living and those who are not. We must, if we're going to be adult, Christians, if we're going to be serious Christians, we must think about the final judgment. How are we going to do that, though? Well, here is one of those places where the truth of God resembles something like a beautiful, multifaceted jewel. I would guess that there are a few of us here today who have beautiful multifaceted jewels somewhere attached to our bodies. If you have one of those right now, would you please hold it up? It's probably on your left hand. Anybody got one in the ear? If you have them any other place, I don't want to know about it. Okay, hanging from your neck, that works, that works. One of the best ways that you and I can sometimes appreciate, especially the most difficult scripture passages, is to understand that the truth of God is like that jewel. It is one thing, and yet it has many facets, many sides, many windows into which we need to look at the deep truth inside. And this is one such passage. You have to look at all of them, all at the same time, in order truly to understand what is being said here. And so let's begin to do that by looking at five of what I think are the most important facets, the most beautiful facets of this beautiful jewel that is God's truth. The first thing that we need to say here is that as we talk about the final judgment, it makes a difference who the judge 
is. I've had the privilege of hanging around lawyers for a long time. And a long time ago, before I went to seminary, I actually got to work in the law field for a little while. And one of the things that I learned from lawyers, especially those who actually stand in front of a judge and a jury, is that it's important who the judge is. Do we have any lawyers in the room willing to admit it who will agree with me there? We do. God bless you all. It's important who the judge is, isn't it? When you're getting ready to defend a client or getting ready to prosecute a case, you try to make sure that that case is going to be tried in front of a judge whom you know to be sympathetic, whom you know to be fair, whom you know to be understanding. Or if you want a conviction, you want the other kind. The first thing and the last thing that we need to understand about this story from Jesus is who the judge is. It's Jesus. Thank God. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He left his cushy, easy, beautiful, wonderful life in heaven and came down here to be with us, to live with us, not just in Rancho Santa Fe, not just in San Diego, but in Fargo and in Atumwa and in Damascus and in Venezuela. The God of heaven and earth came and lived among us. He suffered with us. He suffered for us. He died our death, and then he rose for us. That fact about Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, is the linchpin to all Christian faith and understanding. And it's crucial that we remember that when we think about the last judgment. When we think about that time when we are standing in line wondering which way we're going to go. Jesus is the judge. There's another facet of this beautiful jewel that we must consider. And that is that it convinces us that the kingdom of God is a complicated thing. That's really what we're talking about here. Jesus has just been telling, according to Matthew, a lot of stories that help us understand what the kingdom of God is. And this is one of the final stories that Jesus tells. This is what all of reality is. This is what it is meant to be. This is the way things are. And the way things are is that things are about you and me, not just me and God. Now, I'm going to say that again because the order is important. Things are about you and me, not just about me and God. Now, if you had my ninth grade English teacher, you would be saying, Jack, your grammar is awful. You never say, me first. Me and God. What? There's a reason for that grammatical rule that you always put the others before yourself. Because it's a good theological rule. 
Life is not just about me and God, but to talk to a lot of Christians even, you would think it is. If I had that proverbial nickel or dime for everyone who's ever told me that they're certain that they have a great relationship with God and they never bother to go to church, but God and I are all good. We're, we're like this. We're buddies. We're pals. Me and God have it great. If I had that nickel or dime, I'd solve the problem of world hunger today. You see, there is absolutely nothing in the scripture, there is nothing in Christian faith and doctrine that says that the sum total of Christian faith is about getting your relationship straight with God and just leaving it at that. It's not just about me and God. <laughs> It's about you and me. In that order, Jesus made it perfectly clear. James and John and Paul reinforced that message that my relationship with you and your relationship with me is the single most important key indicator of what your relationship with God is actually all about. John said it so clearly. You say that you have faith in God. Prove your faith to me by the way you love other people. And that's one of the messages of this passage. It's not just about you and God. It's about you and other people. You see, it's so easy to try to turn human religion into rules and regulations, things that we do, things that we follow, coming to church every Sunday, wearing certain clothes, not playing cards, not drinking, etc., etc., etc. But true religion, according to Jesus Christ, is about how we take care of each other. It's a fascinating list that Jesus gives. It's a beautiful list. You're standing there and he's got his huge book and he's checking off all the boxes. You dressed appropriately when you came to church. You came to church and you showed up on time. You stood in line and told the preacher that he had a good sermon. That one I might actually be in there. Jesus might have just forgotten it, okay? That's not on the list at all. What's on the list? I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and I needed your care and love. I was in prison and you came to see me. Every single one of those things is about taking care of other people. What part of that don't we get? The third facet of this jewel is about God's respect for you and me as the free and independent creatures that he made us to be. Another way to say that is about God's respect for the decisions that we make. Now, I don't know that I've ever said to people that bluntly and clearly that God respects you. We're often taught the other side of that, that we should, of course, respect and revere God. And that's absolutely true. But think about it. God said, I have made you in my image. That's pretty important. I have given you a mind with which to think. I have given you a will with which to decide. I have given you a life to live in which you will decide what happens in it. 
God respects the image that he made into us, his image. Therefore, therefore, we have some important decisions to make. I know that in the Calvinistic tradition, people like to talk about predestination all the time, and, and that's an important thing to think about, that God in his sovereign grace and love and truth and power understands and knows where everything started and where it's all going, but that does not mean that we do not have decisions to make. That does not mean that God sets us up as mere robots, mere puppets in a play, and we have nothing to say about it. We have choices to make because God built into us a will, a mind, the ability to create, the ability to work just like God. And so God says, use it. Use it. The fourth facet is right next to this one that I've just talked about. The fourth facet is about the fact that God has designed all of creation, God has designed the world especially, so that we can be part of what he is doing in the world. Have you ever thought about that? The life you are living right now is meant to be a life that is part of what God is doing in the world. Another way to say that is that our actions actually matter. We're all looking for heaven. Anybody here who does not want a little bit more of heaven in your life? I'd love a little bit more of heaven in my life, and I actually can decide to make heaven happen. Do you know how? By doing the things that God does. Feeding people, clothing people, loving people, caring for people. Now notice, the heaven that I make happen is not for me initially. It's for someone else. Anybody here been hungry and somebody put a plate of food in front of you? Anybody here been lonely and somebody walked up and gave you a hug? Anybody here been shunned from community and fellowship and friendship with other people and one person walked over and said, I'll take care of you. I love you. Heaven is not Angels sitting in the clouds playing their golden harps. My Lord, how boring would that be? Heaven is when people are loving each other. Jesus, after he had assembled a group of 12 disciples and that group had grown larger, right in the middle of his ministry, Luke tells us, Jesus sent 70 people out Long before the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection, Jesus said, you guys know what the kingdom of heaven is about. Go out and preach about God's love. Teach about God's healing and grace. Take care of folks. And that's what Jesus says for you and me to do. He says that because he's a wonderful psychologist. He's an even better psychiatrist. The reason I say that is because God made it so that you and I, if we're going to be healthy, need to have productive work to do. Healthy people are people who have something good to do in the world, something useful to do in the world, something that somebody else needs in the world. Well, guess what? That's what God built into us. 
is that desire and that need to do good work. And that good work of doing good and loving others is what makes heaven happen. Without it, heaven is on shaky ground. Heaven does not happen when a child starves to death. Heaven does not happen when someone takes their life because they don't know that anybody loves them. Heaven does not happen when you can fill in the blanks. The fifth facet of this beautiful jewel is that the kingdom of God is comprised of those who actually do receive and understand God's grace. And that's where this whole story about the final judgment circles back around to the topic of God's grace. It does not seem very graceful on its surface for us to say, well, you know, I'm going to get to the judgment one day and God's going to look at the ledger and I just hope that I've done just at least barely enough good so that God will let me in. That doesn't sound very graceful, does it? It doesn't sound very Christian, does it? And in fact, it's not, if that's what you think is going to go on. Remember, Jesus is the judge, the one who is filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness, who already has said, you can't do it well enough. You can't pay it forward enough. You've already blown it. But I love you anyway. I'll come find you. How does this circle back around to grace, though? It does so in this way. You see, it is those who actually understand, those who actually believe and trust what God has done for them, who then will go do for others what God has done for them. It is only someone who knows how much God has given to them who can then turn around and give to others. Did you notice in Jesus' list of things? You gave me food. You gave me water. You gave me clothes. You gave me your time and attention. Not expecting to receive anything back, but you gave because you understand that that's the way God made the world to be, and you understand that God has already given you more than you can possibly deserve. Therefore, you become a grace-filled person. One of the best ways I can think to explain this is to by uh, quoting from the Lenten devotion that we had just last week, the one by Oswald Chambers. It was on March 7th. Let me read it for you. It's two paragraphs long, but you can concentrate that long. Here's what Chambers says. Paul's idea of service was to pour his life out to the last drop for others. And whether he received praise or blame made no difference. As long as there was one human being who did not know Jesus, Paul felt a debt of service to that person until he did come to know him. But the chief motivation behind Paul's service was not love for others, but love for the Lord. If our devotion is to the cause of humanity, we will be quickly defeated and broken-hearted since we will often be confronted with a great deal of ingratitude from other people. But if we are motivated by our love for God, no amount of ingratitude will be able to hinder us from serving one another. Paul's understanding of how Christ had dealt with him 
is the secret behind his determination to serve others. No matter how badly others may have treated Paul, they could never have treated him with the same degree of spite and hatred with which he, as Saul, had treated Jesus Christ. Once we realize that Jesus has served us even to the depths of our meagerness, our selfishness, and our sin, nothing we encounter from others will be able to exhaust our determination to serve others for his sake. You see, Jesus offers that grace. And the proof that we've actually understood it, the proof that we've actually received it, the proof that we actually know it and trust it, is when we then will serve others. Folks would love to see Jesus, wouldn't they? Wouldn't you love to meet Jesus? I'd love to meet Jesus someday. Not right now, Jesus, but, but, but that's okay. <laughs> because I've got Jesus right here in all of you. I've got the kingdom right here in all of you. We have it meeting us in the world every day. All we need to do is reach out and love, give, serve, and we will know what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I thank God that my judge is Jesus. And I thank God that he loves me so much that he trusts me with some of his work to do. You have that same work. You have that same trust. You have that same call and claim on your life. What are you going to do with it? Amen.